Uh, we're going to continue in our series this morning. We're going to look at John chapter 3. Uh, before we do that, just a couple of thoughts. Uh, the Leadership Summit is coming up. We're only a few weeks away. If you have a friend who you think would benefit from that, will you tell them about it? Uh, bring them along with you if you're coming. If you want a scholarship, a younger business person who has an interest in going but might not be able to afford to it, talk to somebody out at the, at the desk. Cindy McGrain's going to be out there this morning, and we'd love to have you come to that. Uh, if you would like to be baptized, it's next Sunday afternoon, and uh, Nick and Susie Bates have volunteered uh, their little private beach on the end of their street Next Sunday, 3 o'clock, we'd love to baptize you. Right now we have three, perhaps four people who have told me. Uh, you need to talk to me or one of our pastors. We'd just like to have you understand what we're doing. And it's a great opportunity for you to um, go public with your faith and identify with Jesus in a way that you will remember for the rest of your life. So I hope that you'll um, talk with one of us about that. Uh, I want to embarrass somebody who doesn't know I'm going to do this for a moment, but Gregory, would you stand up for a second? This is Gregory Hussey. Greg is home for a 24-hour leave from the Navy. And Greg, I made a promise. You don't know this, but I made a promise that whenever I'm aware that one of our soldiers or, or Navy folks or Air Force personnel are home safely, we would celebrate that. And there's a, there's a profound reason for that, that we want to celebrate your service. So thank you. This is John chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Jesus is speaking here at the outset. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. All those who do evil hate the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed but those who live by the truth come into the light so that it may be seen plainly by what they have done that has been done in the sight of God. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you will continue to grant us wisdom. And we appeal to your merciful presence that you will not only look on our service, but that you will descend into this room with us and that your spirit will guide us this morning. Bring us to a greater place of joy as we continue to worship, as we look into your word, as we seek wisdom from on high, that we might be governed by your truth, and that our minds might be enlightened in some way that goes far beyond the words that I have prepared. We believe that you are a God who wants to be known by your people in powerful in personal and intimate ways. And so we ask that as we consider the words of Jesus, that you will open our hearts and minds to understand and take away what you want us to take away. We ask as well that you will lift us away from any of those log jams that come where our spiritual growth in understanding 
gets bogged down. We also pray that your spirit will bring health and healing into our lives. In that vein, we pray for our friend Sig Gallup as she recovers from surgery. We ask that you will surround her this morning. We pray for Carol as, as she also is recovering from uh, surgery and a long hospital stay. Lord, you know the, the folks that we've been praying for week in and week out, for, for Gene and his battle with leukemia, for Tom as he goes through his last round uh, of chemotherapy. Uh, we know that there are others, Lord, that uh, need your strength and your healing. We pray for the spouses of all of these who um, are married and going through great physical challenges because we know this is wearing on them too and that you'll give them strength and energy and hope every day. Guide us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes the heart's cry of a song stays in our collective memory for decades. That's the power that music and songwriting has at its best. Songs like this have a way of finding new life whenever a new artist gets hold of an older song and remakes it, allowing the heart of the original song to cry out to us again in a brand new way. Well, the song I have in mind first hit number one on Billboard's Hot 100 charts in the United States and in England in January of 1985. And then over the years, it was picked up and remade by a number of artists over the next 25 years because the haunting cry from its chorus has a way of speaking what many of us feel, whether you have made that personal connection with Jesus or whether you're trying to find it. The title of the song I have in mind is, I Want to Know What Love Is. It was by the rock group Foreigner. So in the middle of the week, I asked David Cote and Katie Duff if our band could in any way present at least a taste of that song for us because it's in the back of my head. So rather than me trying to really bless you with my personal rendition of, of the song, our North River Band and Worship Team agreed to give us a taste of I Want to Know What Love Is. One, two. Like the world upon my shoulder Through the clouds I see love shine Keeps me warm as life grows colder
Katie. All right, there are a couple of firsts that are going on here. We had a, a cameraman doing this while he was doing I saw that, Ben. And when we began this series at the outset of the summer, I, I joked that we're, uh, the subtitle of this is The Summer of Love, and tie-dye t-shirts are welcome. So uh, some good friends left a t-shirt for me and picked up that dare uh, last Sunday when I went out into the office. So thank you, Gordon, and uh, appreciate that very much, Jordan and Denise. Um, I Want to Know What Love Is was primarily written by Foreigner's Mick Jones. Within weeks, it hit number one in the United States, in the UK, Australia, Canada, Ireland, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, and South Africa. How does that happen? Except a song expresses a thought that transcends probably what the songwriter was thinking about at the very beginning. In fact, when they recorded the song, and Mick Jones played it, played a few bars that he'd written for uh, his producer. He said, oh, I've got something in mind. And they were introduced to a, a gospel choir from a black church in New Jersey. And so they were brought in and they recorded it. You hear this gospel choir behind it, which made many people think that this was a Christian song rather than a general pop song that was just hitting all of the charts. There's something about that thought. I want to know what love really is that we all wrestle with at some point in time. Jones wrote that at 3 o'clock in the morning during a time when his life was going through tremendous upheaval. He'd gone through a difficult divorce. He was contemplating marrying again. He was feuding with the other principal player in the band, Foreigner. And he was having a hard time keeping up with the success, fame, and expectations that their early songwriting and their early success had brought them. The reason why I wanted to start off this message by recalling that song is that it voices this cry that is common for, mo for most of us, if not all of us, at some point in life. We want to know what love really is. And a song like this resonates because it taps into our experience and this universal desire that we share. So, so just think of some of the words here. In the pre-chorus, it says, in my life there's been heartache and pain. Anybody identify with that? I don't know if I can face it again. Can't stop now. I've traveled so far to change this lonely life. Maybe that's where you are this morning. You're dealing with loneliness in the midst of a crowd. And God knows that. And then the chorus of the song belts out the thought that we share. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. So my prayer this morning is that God continues to show us what the highest form of love, God's love, is and how accessible it is for all of us. To fully appreciate what Jesus has done for us, we need to understand God's love for us. And so our topic this morning is reconciling God's love or reconciling God's love in Jesus. This is part four of our All About Love series. And this summer we're looking at several different ways that the Bible talks about love. My hope is that those of you who stay with us, whether you're online or whether you're here with us physically, will come away at the end of the summer with a deeper, more developed, more robust understanding of the love of God we find in Jesus and the love of God that is imparted to those who follow Jesus. 
So let me stop and say that I'm really glad that you're here today. I'm glad to know that some of you are participating with us online as well. I'm glad you're taking part in this because we're dealing with something that is vitally important. Focus on this with us. Because if you do, I think your faith is going to take a, fo- a positive step forward. And I'd love to hear from you, especially those of you who are online. Send me a note with your thoughts or questions. Uh, Paul at northriverchurch.org. Love to hear from you. Right now we're going to dive in a little bit more deeply into understanding the love of God. Here's the question that prompted this particular message and even this song this morning. How do we reconcile God's love with the reality that Jesus had to die? I've had a number of people over the years who've come to me and said, I have a dilemma in my Christian growth and walk. And the dilemma is this. I love Jesus. I think Jesus is the finest human being who ever walked on the earth. I believe he's the son of God. He's the person who has helped me through my greatest trials. But how can I love God if God is the one who sent Jesus to the cross? So do you see the dilemma? There's not just one person. I've had several people who got stuck at that point and would even say, I'm not sure that I really love God with tears running down a man's face because they were stuck on this point. So this is absolutely important for us to, to, to uh, wrestle through. Reconciling God's love. How do we do that? First, by identifying the problem. John 3.16, the most well-known verse in the New Testament says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the problem that a handful of dear friends of mine have become stuck on. We love Jesus, but struggle to love the God who sent Jesus into the world to die. Those who pose this question wrestle with the goodness of God, knowing the plan that was ahead. Here, Jesus is seen as the wisest, most wonderful friend and savior we've ever known. And God's plan for redeeming wayward people demands payment for sin. And Jesus stepped into that role. That combination presents many questions about the goodness of God who who could require the death of an innocent party like Jesus. Now, the result of this thinking is that it leaves a person who wrestles with, with this dilemma loving Jesus, but not sure if they can love God. And I see three problems that arise from this. The first problem that rises from being stuck here is that you end up with an incomplete understanding of Jesus. You may have developed a Jesus who is separated from God the Father so far in your understanding that there's this gap that gets created. Like God the Father, the Creator, assigned Jesus to a task he wouldn't have taken up on his own, we think when we wrestle with that question. So because Jesus suffered and died in the eyes of the person who's stuck on this problem, that leaves us with a God who is not good, a God who's not worth following, and this tremendous dilemma drawn to Jesus, repelled by the Father. Men and women who have father issues get stuck here really often. And they see God through the lens of a human father, not realizing we need to do it the other way around. And look at the capacity and the capability for human fathers through the reality of who our heavenly father really is and how good he really is. This view also lacks a recognition of how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share the same essence as part of the Trinity. 
The second problem is that the cross itself is seen as something that is bad, something to be avoided. So a person whose spiritual development gets stuck here might choose a crossless Jesus. I like Jesus. I like the nice Jesus who talks to us on the side of the mountain. I'm not sure I want to deal with the Jesus who goes to the cross. But to do that, we have to invent a new Jesus because we're moving away from the Jesus of the New Testament and the Jesus of history. We want the Jesus of the peaceful meadows, the Jesus who heals the crowds, but not the Jesus who goes to the cross. Not that Jesus. Not that ugly outcome. The third problem is that we end up with a God who is not good if we get stuck there. So your view of goodness is not a gospel goodness. And because you view God as not good, you find that you're not able to fully trust God, which hampers the way you live every single day of your life. Now, I don't mean to belittle anybody's struggle if this is where you are stuck. But painting the picture with these implications from this view is necessary. When we see what this takes away from Jesus, we are then able to begin to move forward and to move deeper into the biblical picture of who Jesus really is. So here's my second thought. The gospel... And by that, I mean the fullness of the gospel, wherever we find it, helps us solve this. So Jesus takes us back to a gospel nugget that comes from the Old Testament. And he quotes this part of the Old Testament story in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Jesus is speaking here. He's in that conversation with Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came to him at night. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Here we see Jesus teaching what later has become known as the Jesus hermeneutic. Hermeneutics are the principles of interpretation that help us understand God's word. So in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and 45, tells us that what Jesus did in those days immediately after the resurrection when he spent 40 days with his disciples. Verse 44, Luke 24 says, He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's code word for the entire Old Testament. And then he goes on and he says, or then it says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. The Jesus hermeneutic is this, and it comes from Jesus. All the scriptures are about Jesus. All of them. Every single book. The Bible is a collection. The word Bible comes from a Greek word that simply means collection of books. But the Bible is one set of 66 books, and all of them in some way or another either point toward Jesus or declare more about what is known about Jesus, or tell us his words. This principle comes from Jesus himself. So we are not making this up. This is not a man-made thing. This is the way he taught his disciples in those precious 40 days that he had with them before he ascended back to the heavens. He's telling us that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. So if I invoke the words of Tim Keller here, he would say, when we, when we teach about uh, David slaying Goliath, It's not so that you can take a principle out there and say, you can slay your giants in the world. Then we make it a moralistic tale. It's really about 
pointing forward how even in the, in the reality of David, a young teenage boy slaying this giant in his life, it's about how much more greatly Jesus slays all the spiritual giants for us. When we teach about Elijah, uh, or Jacob rather, wrestling with the angel, it's not about how you can wrestle with God too, it's about how Jesus has wrestled with God and he has come away with the ultimate blessing. The point is that everything in the Old Testament points forward to something greater that Jesus has fulfilled. And everything in the New Testament sheds more and more light about what he said and what he did and why it matters. This is the Jesus hermeneutic. Some of you were here years ago when we took a whole year to go through the story. We, we did an overview of the entire Bible in that year. For those of you who weren't with our church at that time, we wanted to deepen the overall biblical knowledge of our church as a whole. And as we did this, with each book of the Bible, we took a week for each book, we talked about what we called the lower story and the upper story. Anybody remember that? The lower story was what was going on in that text of the Bible or in that book of the Bible, and we were trying to have integrity in telling the story as it is written. But then we also looked each week at what the upper story is, which is what is God doing in the big picture, and how does this little story fit into the bigger story, the upper story of, of the grand, uh, great saga of God's work of saving grace over, throughout all time. And it's the Jesus hermeneutic that takes us to the ability to think at this next level. Jesus' comment about the snake in the desert is a profound example of this. Jesus was explaining the gospel to Nicodemus, that curious Pharisee who came to him at night, and he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus was making a shocking comparison between himself and the snake that Moses lifted up. Why was it shocking? Well, there were serpents who were sent by God in judgment upon the people of Israel as they were moving through the wilderness because they'd been complaining about God and complaining so bitterly that all of a sudden they wandered into this uh, collection of serpents. But he also provided a way out. And he had Moses create a a bronze snake and lifted on a pole. So it almost looked like a cross. You have this bronze snake and you have a pole and somebody carrying the pole in the front of the crowd. And the promise from God was, if you look at the snake in faith, you will be healed. Did the snake have any power? No. It was an Old Testament example of healing by faith and of salvation by grace through faith. People didn't do anything to make their outcome better. All they did was look at that snake. And Jesus is telling the disciples, and he's telling Nicodemus that night, this is there in the Old Testament because it's about me. That this is an example, a smaller example, of what was yet to come. That our salvation has always come by faith in the God who gives it, never by personal accomplishment, never by being more religious than the other person, even in the days of Moses all the way back in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is applying the, the Jesus hermeneutic to that kind of thinking. Three things were going on back there. This appears in Numbers chapter 21, fourth book of the Old Testament. Judgment had been rendered when people sinned against God, but in love for his people, God was providing a way out 
And embracing this way out required faith. Those are the three things. Judgment, God providing a way out in love, and an application of faith in order to access that. Jesus' comment to Nicodemus reveals the Old Testament doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. In other words, this is what God had been doing all through those years, but in veiled form. This is not something brand new with Jesus. It's only seen with greater clarity because of Jesus. It says in the Old Testament that Abraham believed God and it was counted by God as righteousness. It wasn't saying that Abraham was perfect. Abraham was a lousy example in a lot of ways. Jacob believed God when his promises were revealed. And when the people looked at the bronze snake on the pole, something like a cross, when they did this in faith, they were healed. So this is the gospel in the Old Testament that Jesus is proclaiming. Judgment has come as a natural result of people doing evil things. But in mercy and love, God provides a way out from that burden. And receiving that merciful way out demands faith in a redeemer. It's in the Old Testament, and it's in the New Testament through Jesus. The gospel is good news because all sinners naturally stand under judgment already. Sometimes we hear people say, what if I want heaven, but I don't want your Jesus? What they fail to see is that because of their sin, they already stand under the judgment of God. It's not that God has pronounced some curse over them. It's just a natural phenomenon. We stand outside of of God's uh, grace and, and God's pathway that he's chosen for us whenever we choose to rebel against his commands. And so there's a, a natural consequence that falls on everyone. But in his mercy, God provides that way out. He sent Jesus to provide a kind of grace that we never ever deserve. Rejecting Jesus means that people choose judgment instead of Jesus. Darkness versus light. Believing in Jesus, that Jesus is the one pathway that God has provided, allows us to avoid that judgment because he takes it for us. All of this because Jesus stepped into the pathway of judgment for us on the cross. If this makes sense to you, I'm going to give you an opportunity in a little while to respond to that mercy and to tell God that you want to receive that. But here's the third discovery. Jesus was involved in the decision. Look at John 3.16. There's a reason why that is the most memorized verse in the Bible, the most quoted verse in the Bible, the verse that shows up not only on Black Islander under football players' uh, eyes, but in, in, in athletic stadiums around the world, that people want to get us to look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Think for a minute, who is God? Who is the one who so loved the world and us? The Bible reveals that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have a divine complexity within unity. Three individual persons, yet sharing the same essence and being in complete harmony with each other. The first clue of this is found in the opening three verses of Genesis chapter 1, the first book of the Bible. In verse 1, we meet God the Creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, we meet the Spirit of God. It says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So somehow, as God is creating the world, the Spirit of God is taking all of this in. In verse 3, it's a little more veiled, but it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and then the creative force begins to happen. 
John's gospel opens our understanding for this when God tells us that, when, when, when uh, John writes the words of Jesus, that light was coming into the world and that the true light was coming into the world and that everything was created for him and by him. So John is telling us that Jesus was there in the very beginning, that Jesus was the creative force that God used involved in the creation of the world from the start. We never know God in isolation, only within this divine harmony that's revealed within the first three verses of the Bible. One God, three distinct persons, but sharing the same mindset, the this, this same harmony, the same essence. The second clue we have about God comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. This is where God speaks with plural pronouns. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And so we're wondering, who's the us and our? Is God speaking in the royal we? But it's really scriptural evidence that speaks of one God who exists in these three distinct persons. This does not tell us of a father who assigns his son to a, loath a loathsome task that leads to death. It tells us that Jesus was involved not only in the creation of the human race right from the beginning, but he did this knowing that people would sin and fail and still be loved by God and that he would be part of the solution. Having the mind of God, Jesus was involved from the very beginning. It tells us that the cost that was shouldered by Jesus on the cross and by God the Father, who also suffers in sending this love-filled Son who is willing to die for us all, was something that he took head-on, knowing what was coming. Jesus, in participating in the creation of the world and in, cre in the creation of human beings like you and me, knew the outcome that we would all fail and that his love was so great, and the Father's love so great, was so great, that together they would walk down this path on our behalf. This is the God that we are introduced to in John 3.16. So John 3.16 tells us that God's love involves the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Do you see how that begins to lift away the dilemma? God, the creator, the father, loved the whole world enough to give his very own one-of-a-kind son. The Holy Spirit, who guides us, loved the whole world enough to be part of that sending of Jesus and ministering to him in those great days of difficulty. And Jesus himself loved the whole world and human beings enough to take part not only in the creation of the human race, but also he loved us enough to suffer for us. Seeing this upholds our understanding of the full participation of the triune God. Rather than wondering how a good God could send a poor Jesus to die, we find this incredible love of all three members of the Trinity who are involved in God's plan of redemption at every step. In becoming fully human, in addition to being fully divine, Jesus fully surrendered to the divine plan which led to the very Son of God tasting death on our behalf. So Jesus really died, becoming sin for us that we might live. And this shows us how great his love for us was that he would go to such depths. The cross isn't just an example of love. The cross is where he poured out his love. The cross is where in love he conquered the problem for us. And in his great love for us, God the Father suffered along with Jesus 
as his own son died. We talked about this last week. When you become a parent, they don't tell you when you pick up this little child in the nursery that you will suffer because of this child in some way. You will hurt when this child hurts. You will go through great pain when your child goes through emotional and personal agony. And if your child dies before you do, the pain is unbearable. God the Father willingly takes on this kind of suffering for us. He loves you. He loves you so much that he doesn't whitewash our behavior or the reality of our world or our own complicity in mankind's sinfulness. He loves us so much that knowing that all that would happen, he paid the cost for us and he provided a way out which we can take hold through his mercy. Where do we see the love of God in Jesus' death? First, in the cost that our redemption from sin required. Second, in the suffering that he embraced in sending his son in order to satisfy divine justice. The issue was, how can God remain a just God and forgive the guilty? I'm guilty, you're guilty. How could he do that? He can't just sweep it under the rug and make it go away and pretend it's not there. Somebody had to take the penalty for God to remain a just judge who doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. And so Jesus takes that because only Jesus could take the hit and come back. Third, instead of hating the cross, Christians come to love the cross because of what it stands for in all of its fullness. So we sing some of these amazing songs. Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die and find that I might truly live. Or I know a place, a wonderful place, where confused and condemned find mercy and grace, where the wrongs we have done and the wrongs done to us are nailed there with him there on the cross. Or we step back to an older time. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Years ago, there was a group of missionaries that had an audience with Mahatma Gandhi. And he said, uh, which of your songs declares most clearly what you believe as Christians? That's what the missionary sang to him. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And Gandhi responded and said, You've chosen well. You've given me a lot to think about. It expresses why we worship around here, why we sing, why sometimes even men get emotional and get caught up in some of the songs. We were singing that song, I Speak Jesus, a few minutes ago. Did you get excited by that? I did. The part that gets me is when I sing, Jesus for my family. And I think all the family members who who aren't walking with Jesus or who don't know Jesus or who've walked away from Jesus in my larger family. I get emotional when I sing those words. I'm fine until those words. Because that's what I want is Jesus for my family. Instead of separating Jesus from the cross or from the love of God, 
we find the real Jesus in the love for us that drew him to the cross. Now, there are some earlier moments in uh, movements in, in recent Christian development that try to separate Jesus from the cross by whitewashing our sin. Oh, Jesus didn't really need to come and do that. That's, that's part of the metaphor that tells us about how great God's love is. The result was summarized by H. Richard Niebuhr, a theologian who put it this way, describing a whole movement away from the cross. He wrote, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's what happens when we stop focusing on the cross, when we stop talking about what it means, or stop thinking about how Jesus going to the cross shows us how greatly he loved us and that he willingly participated in the decision. The gospel puts it this way. We looked at this verse last week. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Or in the main verse for today, for God so loved the world. Do you have a better understanding of how much he loved the world? And he gave his one and only son who was involved in the decision. And whoever believes in him shall not perish. Meaning, die with the responsibility of your own sins on your back. But you will have eternal life. The part of you that is essentially you will go on with God forever. So here's the big idea for this morning. The love of God is so great that rather than repelling us, it draws us to the cross and fills us with gratitude. Rather than repelling us away from the cross, it draws us to the cross. So would you like to receive the grace of God that was born out of that love? I hope that you have already, but there are probably some here or some online who have not. In, in doing this, you realize the debt for your own sin is something you can never repay or bear by yourself. In doing this, you're turning from the pride of doing it my way, the Frank Sinatra approach to spirituality, uh, to choosing his way, which is greater. In doing this, you are firmly placing your trust in Jesus, the Son of God, who places your debt on his account. Ever have somebody do that for you where they pick up the tab and you didn't see it coming? And who calls you to follow him from this day forward? If you'd like to do that, repeat this prayer with me. It's going to show up behind me and it'll show up for you online wherever you are. If you mean this, your life is changed by the time we're done with this one prayer and you're on the beginning of a path to a whole new life. If you dare, pray with me. Dear God, Thank you for loving me enough to send Jesus. Lord Jesus, I am trusting you today that you have paid my debt. I will follow you as best I know how. Grant me a whole new life of gratitude and grace. The love of God is so great that rather than repelling us from the cross, it draws us to the cross. And when we understand how great Jesus' love is, how great the Father's love is, it fills us with immense amounts of gratitude. God, guide us this week as we go into a world that badly needs to see the love of God operating through people, ordinary people like us. Transform us by your love. Today, Lord, we've tried to understand a little bit more 
about how great and how deep your love is and the cost that you and our Lord Jesus were willing to bear. Allow that to wash over us, to change us, to shape the way we think in every conversation we're in this week, in every realm of life that we enter this week, whether work, home, marriage, singleness, retirement, raising children, whatever we do, allow the love of God, the love of Jesus, the love of the Holy Spirit to flow through us and maybe to change the world. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please stand for our last worship song.